So just for help clarity, when I say Decalogue, I'm referring to the, the Ten Commandments. I don't keep any of the Decalogue for righteousness in Christ. If at the end of the day, that's all my righteousness is, I'm condemned and I'm not part of the kingdom of God. This is Leo Eby. I spent three days in Utah with this man and realized Jesus's character was probably very similar to this. His attitudes and the words of God just flowing out of his mouth constantly. I was very impressed and I wanted to invite him to speak to our church. He spent over a decade studying the Sabbath day and he wanted to share this topic with you. Normally it's five one hour sessions and he's just condensing it to a, one, a little over an hour in this message. If you like this message or you want to know more, hit the like button and make sure you comment so that we can get him back and do the non-condensed version of the five sessions instead of this condensed version. So when you're looking at his slides, ignore the fact that he's zooming through them uh, because it's part of a bigger picture. He had many, many more slides than what we showed today. And without any further ado, uh, Leo E.B. on the Sabbath day. The subject I'd like to talk about this morning is uh, the subject of what we know as the Sabbath day, Lord's Day subject. It's actually a subject of rest. That's really what it's all about. It's about rest. So we want to dig into this a little bit. And um, I shared this topic numerous times in my life. And uh, I like to know where there's exit because sometimes the things I say don't really fit. So I see there's an exit right there. <clears throat> so uh, if I feel like I'm getting uncomfortable, I might have to make an exit. Hebrews 1 says that God in sundry times and divers manners, spake in times to pass into the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, <clears throat> whom he appointed heir of all things, and by whom he created the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus is been revealed to this world. And um, I also want to introduce this subject with uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. It says, The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, hath given unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, him being Jesus. For what purpose? That the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the, his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him on his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. So if we're going to find any answers today, it's going to be, we're going to find them in Jesus Christ. All authority is directly in proportion to the truth in which it is lined. Therefore, Jesus being all truth is all authority. And I think one of the best illustrations of this is when you have Jesus and Pilate face to face. Pilate said to Jesus, don't you know I have the authority to put you to death? And his reply was, you would have no authority at all, except my Father in heaven would give you authority. 
Jesus recognized the authority that Pilate had through his father. But Pilate, I don't think, recognized the authority that Jesus had. Jesus, being all truth, was all authority. The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Seventh day, rest. Seventh day. For some reason, our Creator thought it was good to rest after his six days of creation. But we also have Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching for his understanding. What did our creator need rest for? Do we need rest? Who did he rest for? Does God get tired? Everything about Sabbath. What does the scriptures teach us about Sabbath? And uh, because this is your typical Sunday school class, I'd like to engage you a little bit on this on, at this point. And not just like to, when you think of Sabbath, and by the way, the Sabbath subject isn't just an Old Testament subject. It's the word Sabbath is all through the New Testament as well. So anything about Sabbath that you know of in the scriptures? It's to be kept holy. It was to be kept holy. Thank you. The Jews were to do no work on the Sabbath. They were to do no work on the Sabbath. And it was a sort of a, a blanket statement. No work. No servile work. There was one one particular thing that they were not to do on Sabbath. Otherwise, it was a pretty blanket statement. Do you know what that is, David? They weren't to kindle the fire. They were not to start a fire. That's why food had to be prepared on the day before. No food preparation on, on the Sabbath day. I don't even think today that they light candles on the Sabbath day. What else about the Sabbath? Dedicated to God. It was dedicated. Where did the concept of a Sabbath come from? Where is the first place in the Bible that we hear about the Sabbath? That he created the story when it said God rested on the seventh day. The word Sabbath isn't used there, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar or anything, but the word rest, God rested on the seventh day. God completed his works, and he ceased from creating on the Sabbath. Another place I think it's in Deuteronomy, it says, and he was refreshed. Very good. Where's the first place in the Bible the word Sabbath is actually used in the, our English? How about Exodus 16? In Exodus chapter 16, do you, do you know what the occasion was? So what children of Israel were going through the wilderness, and they come through the uh, wilderness of sin, and they were hungry and thirsty, and they begin to murmur. And God says, I'm going to rain bread from heaven. And he introduced the idea of a Sabbath to them. And uh, so my point is, this happened before Exodus 19 and 20, sequentially. Before they got to Mount Sinai, God introduced the subject of the Sabbath and gave them specific instructions and how the Sabbath related to the gathering of manna. And more on the Sabbath. What day of the week was it? Did it matter? It was specifically the seventh day. Yes. And it said God rested on the seventh day and hallowed it. Is there any evidence of Sabbath keeping before Exodus chapter 16? 
Do you know any account where the patriarchs kept the Sabbath day recorded in the scriptures? There's no record of it. Howbeit, it does say Abraham kept all of God's commandments and statutes. Job says a similar statement in Job chapter 23, that he didn't neglect the commandments of God. What commandments did they have? We don't know for sure, but it specifically says of these two people that they kept the commandments and statutes of God. Also, Noah knew something about clean and unclean. What context was the, the Sabbath day commandment given in? It was given to a people that was on a journey from out of Egypt into the promised land. That's good. What other context was the commandment given in? What mountain were they at? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. They weren't listening. They weren't listening. <laughs> it was given in the context of how many other commandments? The third commandment. Pardon? Third commandment. Third. Fourth commandment. Fourth commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So this commandment was given in the context of ten other, it says words, but commandments that were God gave. And that was nestled into in the center of a whole bunch of other commandments that was given at the same time. But these words were written in what? Stone. The rest of the words Moses wrote in a book. How were this how were these commandments given? I mean, how how were they written? God's finger. And he wrote in what? Stone. He didn't take a soft clay tablet and take his finger and, and smear it through the soft clay. He, he engraved it in stone with his finger. Now, I don't know how, what you visualize when you visualize something like that, but I, I think of a plasma cutter for some reason. Anybody know what a plasma cutter is? A plasma cutter is a, a device that uses electrical art and air to chisel out steal and weld and make a groove or cut. That's just my visual of it. When, I, when God reached down and touched that stone, I, I, believe, I believe it was sizzling and chips were flying and the words just developed right on the stone. There's more surrounding circumstances to this uh, giving of this law. What was that? There was a lot of commotion around this, work, this giving of this law. Lots of commotion. Okay, we had golden calf. But prior to that, when the people, Lord said, get the people ready and bring them up to the mountain. And it says the earth began to shake. A thick, dark cloud came down on the mountain. The, fire, the mountain began to burn with fire like a furnace. Thunder, lightning, 
and a trumpet began to blow and this and it got and the trumpet did not let up it just started getting louder and louder and louder and louder an ear-spitting blast until God Moses spoke and then God spoke Hebrews says that Moses said, I, this, the sight was so exceedingly fearful, he said, I do exceedingly fear and quake. The people were afraid. They come to Moses and said, don't let God speak to us anymore. We had heard the voice of God and lived. From now on, let God speak to you and you speak to us and we'll do all the words. I want to read briefly out of Exodus chapter uh, 24. Exodus chapter 24 and verse 4 and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and built an altar into the hill 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel and he sent young men of the children of Israel which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord and Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood is sprinkled on the altar and he took the blood of the covenant and read it in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And then the covenant was ratified with blood. It says Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. So we see that this covenant was ratified in blood because it was a covenant that God had made with his people of children of Israel. Was the this covenant was directly for the Jewish people? He was making a covenant with them. But was this moral covenant? Did it have any implications out beyond the Jewish people? What do you think? Romans three verse nineteen says, "Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth might be stopped." And all the world may become guilty before God. So not only was this covenant made with the children of Israel, the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it had implications that reached into the whole world for the purpose of bringing the whole world guilty before God. Was there any penalties involved for breaking this commandment? Was there any penalties involved for breaking this covenant? Yes, there was. The scriptures are very clear in Exodus chapter 31, 18, 13 to 18, that the penalty for breaking the commandments of God was death. We actually have an, uh, a story illustration in Numbers chapter 15. Does anybody know what happened in Numbers chapter 15? A man was found gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And they put him in prison until they wanted to find out what the Lord wanted to be done. And his Lord said, the man must be put to death. And so all the congregation of Israel stoned him to death in the New Testament. Nobody has mentioned anything in the New Testament as far as what was said about the Sabbath. Does anyone, anyone want to bring up any New Testament subjects about the Sabbath? Yes. Uh, one of the things they uh, tried to accuse Jesus of was healing a man on the Sabbath. Jesus responded and said, um, who of you, 
whose sheep didn't fall into a well or something for the rest of the months out. Thank you. In every account of the gospel, scripture is given for the conflict of the Sabbath day with Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus made some many statements about the Sabbath day. He said the Sabbath was not, a man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. He also said, I'm Lord also of the Sabbath. Read Matthew chapter 12. What does James have to say about this law? So here we are. We've, I've, we've developed this Sabbath day commandment into the context of the Decalogue. The Decalogue means 10 commandments. We have developed that into the context of a covenant. So now we have the Decalogue connected with a covenant. And James has some more to say about it. Whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet infend in one point, he is guilty of all. One of my goals this morning in this period is to make you uncomfortable. Because I don't know your lives real well. I don't know if there's anybody here that actually keeps the Sabbath day commandment or not. But I would venture a guess that most of you didn't keep a Sabbath yesterday. Fact of it is, it probably was a pretty busy day. Let me read you a few excerpts out of this book. Some people claim to be New Testament Christians, implying they consult the New Testament alone for teaching. Unfortunately, someone taught them these well-intentioned believers that the New Testament canceled the teachings of the old. Paul disagrees. He said, God inspired all scripture to equip us for the work. All scripture is given by inspiration for God, from God and is profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. For what purpose? That the man of God might be perfect thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It is said of Abraham, my voice, my voice and kept my, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. The eternal 10 commandment law was included in both the old and new covenants. God's law served as a standard of judgment before Mount Sinai and continued to do so after the resurrection. Sunday keeping is a tradition of men. Most Bible scholars readily admit that. Of course, I quite well know that Sunday did come into up use in early Christian history as a religious day, as we learn from the Christian fathers and other sources. But what a pity that it comes branded with the mark of paganism and christened with the name of the sun god, then adopted and sanctified by the papal apostasy and bequeathed as a sacred legacy to the Protestantism. So the question you need to ask yourself are you making void the commandment of God by your traditions? How can you justify what you did yesterday and what you're doing today? One of the things when I was searching for answers that I got very uncomfortable with and uh, was that people that were trying to justify the Lord's day would say things like this, that in the beginning, God made the principle or established the principle that one day in seven a man should rest well I guess <clears throat> I guess that's a good try but the fact of it is God specifically identified which day he didn't say one day in seven 
He said, six days shalt thou work, and the seventh day shall be a Sabbath unto the Lord thy God. It's not a one in seven, you know, come take this one, leave that one. It's, that's not the way it works. The seventh day is always the seventh day. Well, James puts a, uh, a real uh, conviction into my heart when I was going through my journey. I, this was a, become a real, <clears throat> pardon me, wrestling, a real wrestling thing with me to get a grip on just what was uh, where I stood as it's as my as far as my relationship with God, and so God's covenant, this this decalogue which was written engraved in stone, was a a a manifestation of God's covenant with the people of Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 27, Cursed be he that conformeth not all the words of this law to do them. And all the people said, Amen. Now, Jeremiah says 31, verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Listen carefully. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt with my covenant they break, although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Let's talk about Sunday, the first day, the eighth day. Am I not keeping the Sabbath on Sunday? After all, didn't Jesus change the Sabbath to Sunday? Let's see what the scriptures say. Of course, Sunday isn't mentioned in the scriptures, but the word first day is. We're going to have the first day is mentioned eight times in the New Testament, and we're going to take a quick look at it. Matthew 28 has to do with the uh, uh, Mary Magdalene on the first day of the week. She went to see the sepulcher. The second one uh, is in Mark chapter 16. Uh, very early on the first day of the week, they came to the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. Number three. Now, when Jesus was risen on the first day of the week, he appeared to Mary the Magdalene, out of the whom he had cast seven devils. Number four. Now, upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came into the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. Luke chapter 24, 1. Number five. First day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene. Another recount of that, John 20, verse 1. Number 6, the same day at evening being the first day of the week on John 20, verse 19, when the doors were shut, where the disciples assembled because of the fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. So these first six reference the first day either of, of Jesus' resurrection or the people come into the empty sepulcher, or the gathering together of the disciples, and it says specifically why they were gathered together, because of the fear of the Jews. <coughs> Number seven, Acts 20, verse seven, and upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bed, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech unto midnight. So we have a count of Paul preaching on the first day of the week. Number eight, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection of the saints, 
as I have given order to the church of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gathering when I come. So we have the two of the most uh, weighty evidences in number seven and number eight, where they have account of the disciples gathered together first day of the week. But there's no reference anywhere where it says that you shouldn't do business on the Sunday. It doesn't say you shouldn't work on Sunday. It doesn't say that the Sabbath was ever changed to Sunday. There's no, no wording like that. Do the churches keep the Ten Commandments as a combined unit? Do we have the authority to choose which of the Ten Commandments to keep? Sadly, most Christians ignore the fourth. They say, well, we keep nine out of ten. What's wrong with the fourth one? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This people draw nigh unto me with their lips and nigh unto me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but the heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. Mark 7, 9. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandments of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. Most Christians, with a few exceptions, traditionally have observed a first day, Lord's Day, Sunday, as a rest in public worship in exchange for the Sabbath. Ignoring the Sabbath. Revelation 4.12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. John 15.10. If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. And hereby we do know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, are ye listening? He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. John, 1 John 3, 22, And whatsoever ye ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments, and we do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Blessed are they that do his commandments. They, that have the, they shall have the right to the tree of life, and may enter into the gates of his city. Revelation 22, 14. I don't know how you feel by this point, but when I got to this point, I was convinced of one thing, and that was I was a commandment breaker in, in, in entirety. There was no getting around it. I didn't have to consult some theologian to understand that I wasn't keeping the commandments. And James makes it clear that if you break one, you've broken them all. The question that stuck with me, though, is... Was I a lawless person despising the word of God? Or was I establishing the word of God? Was I destroying the law or was I establishing the law? What is the Decalogue capable of doing? I guess everybody knows what the word Decalogue means. It means the Ten Commandments. I try to use as many words as I, as I can because the word law has so many nuances of meaning that you can get lost in it. So just for help clarity, when I say Decalogue, I'm referring to the, the Ten Commandments. The Decalogue can only do one of two things, and that's make me a self-righteous person or convince me that I'm a sinner. Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives this illustration in the parable. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, 
the other a sinner. And the Pharisee stood thus and prayed thus with himself. And he said, I thank thee, God, that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this publican. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. The publican was somewhere far off. And he said he couldn't even so much as lift his head up towards heaven. But he smote his chest and said, Lord, be merciful me to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. You see, the law has a purpose to it. If it makes you a self-righteous person, it can't take you any further than that. But if it convinces you that you are a sinner, there's hope for you. Because then you cry out for mercy and God will reach out and touch your life. I'm an amateur PowerPoint builder, so not everything gets quite in line like I'd like for it to. But I'd like to talk a little bit about this story here. Our bishop gives a story one time of one Sunday afternoon, a group of boys were playing around and the farm where they were at, there was two 80 foot concrete silos with, with a railing around the top. So the boys decided we're going to go up the silo. So they went up the silo When they got to the top of the silo. The big boys decided, you know what? I think we can go from one top of the silo to the other silo. So the big boys stepped out over the rail, reached out as far as they could, put their foot on the other side, grabbed the rail, and moved across. But one little boy on the end, he was too short. His legs didn't reach the other silo. Neither did his arms. He didn't want to go back down the silo. So what did it take? He had to let go of the one and leap for the other one. And now there's a reason for why I'm telling this, and I'll, I'll probably bring this up later um, in, in, uh, in my talk, if I don't run out of time. But the next step in my, uh, in my testimony is, is that in uh, somewhere around the middle of 2007, when I was trying to get through all my questions and all the answers I was looking for, we got a Times Magazine in the mail one day. And I opened up the Times Magazine, and here there was an article in the Times Magazine of, uh, uh, concerning Pope Benedict and a rabbi named Rabbi Jacob Nunsner. And this article was about a, a dialogue and a conversation they had. And I was reading through the article, and it was given some of the questions that uh, Pope Benedict was asking the rabbi. And so he said to the rabbi, so what did Jesus take away from your Torah? And the rabbi's answer was nothing. He said, did he add anything? He said, yes. He said, what was that? He said, he added himself. And when I read those words, I understood something that I just didn't have understood before. And, and maybe that's not clear to you, 
But that little pronoun, when Jesus says, I and my, in the word of God, he is communicating something to you that you should pay attention to. Because Jesus is putting himself in a crucial position in the word of God. Jesus isn't a factor in our redemption. He's the sum of our redemption. The person of Jesus Christ. Who is he? His deity, his incarnation and humanity and his purpose. Now, what I'm going to share next, I normally spend an hour and a half on. But it's so important. I don't have time to actually expound on it. But I'm just going to go through briefly these slides. I'm going to take about 10 minutes to go through these. And we're going to take a look at just who Jesus is. Knowing who Jesus is, is important and critical understanding and interpretation of the Sabbath day, Lord's day subject. Philippians 3, verse 9, one of my favorite verses. That, that I may be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that righteousness which is of faith in Jesus Christ, that righteousness which is of God by faith. One of the, the secrets I discovered in understanding this subject is to to understanding the, the, the concept of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who is this person, Jesus? He is the Word of God. That which we, from, from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands of hand, of the Word of life. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of the living God. He is Emmanuel, uh, the Son of Man. The, he is Emmanuel. He is the Holy Child. He is the Creator. He is the Son. Notice how that's spelled. This is prophetic language from Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. And I'm going to stop and just tell you a little story in relation to this. In my journey in this subject, um, this was an important part of my experience. And, and when I was searching for answers, I was invited to go with a young man that I do business with to Fairfax, Virginia one day to, uh, because I'm a lumberman, this, this man in Virginia had some trees that he wanted me to look at. So the boy, young man I was with, his name was Joey, and we left real early one morning, I think about five o'clock, and we drove to Fairfax, Virginia to see this man's trees because this man's acquaintance was with my friend Joey, not myself. So we get down to Fairfax, Virginia, and uh, we look at the man's trees, but the trees weren't of any consequence as far as business goes. But the man was nice enough. He was an elderly man. And we got there about 730 in the morning and we looked at his trees, decided it wasn't anything that we could do business with. And he said, would you uh, would you come into my house to have breakfast with me? And the young man that was with me said, no, nah, let's don't let's don't go in there. And I said, well, why not? Let's just go eat breakfast with the man. After all, uh, he invited us in and he said, now we don't have meat. He said, we well, don't eat meat. But he said, uh, we're having eggs for breakfast. I said, well, that's fine. I don't have to have meat for my breakfast. So I went into the house and we sat down and his wife brought the breakfast to us and we ate it. And meanwhile, while I was eating, this man began to ask me questions to figure out who I was. And after he figured out who I was, he took it upon himself to... Uh, let me know, he said, I have to let you know that, uh, that um, how deceived you might be. Said, okay. And so he began to tell me 
how that my lack of observation of the Sabbath day was a, a, uh, a result of paganism brought into the church through Constantine, uh, the Emperor Constantine back in 312, I believe it was. And that Constantine was responsible for combining paganism and Christianity and making uh, Sabbath day, Sunday, and making Sunday laws and laws against Sabbath day. And that ultimately, uh, Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. So I, I listened very carefully to what he said, and it just so happened that I had been just recently been familiarized with uh, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. And I said, well, sir, I said, if you read in your King James Version in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, that under them that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and I said, if you check, that's spelt capital S-U-N. And I said, that's prophetic language of Jesus. And so I'm here to tell you, I'm an unashamed sun god worshiper. <laughs> End of discussion. And I, I, I walked out of that house. Um, I, I was just amazed that the Spirit had brought that, number one, that the Spirit had even given me that verse to, re, to reply with. And I was able to do it in a very polite way where I wasn't confrontational or anything like that. But I, I was, it became a critical uh, part of my experience of understanding the subject of who Jesus is. He is the light. He is the lawgiver. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. There is only one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who art thou that judges another? He is the law. This is, I'm going to stop here just a little bit because this is critical. Come ye, Isaiah 2, verse 3, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth a law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Why would Isaiah be talking about a law coming out of Zion when we already had the law given on Mount Sinai? Another reference in Isaiah, Isaiah 42, verse 4. And the owl shall wait for his law. What for law are we waiting for? Of course, this is pre-Christ, pre the incarnation of Christ. He is the seed. He is the Lamb of God. Oh, let me back up. There is something to say about the seed. A seed demonstrates something about the laws of God that are very integral to un unpacking this thing. Jesus said, except the grain of corn fall in the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth life. I was walking through the forest one day with a young man who was an unbeliever, and I picked up an acorn. I said, you see this acorn? If you study that acorn, you can understand something about the gospel of Jesus Christ. For an acorn to grow, this acorn must die in order for life to come forth. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Ram of God. I wish I had time to develop that one. But it's referencing the ram that was caught in the thicket when Abraham was going to offer Isaac. If you want to note something, note that the ram was caught in the thicket by his horns. He is the great high priest. He is a prophet. Paul, uh, Peter references Moses. He said, God's going to raise up a prophet like unto me of your brethren. Him shall you hear in all the things that he should say unto you. We have four accounts of the Mount of Transfig uh, of the transfer. Figuration in the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and also Second Peter, 
references the transfiguration. And in all the accounts, we have the uh, James and John and Peter with Jesus on the mount. And lo and behold, two men show up to speak with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. And it even says what they discussed. They discussed his decease, his death. And it says a cloud, a bright cloud come down on the mount. And out of that voice, the disciples heard, they said, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. What happens next? The cloud goes up and the only one remaining standing was Jesus. That's significant. And it connects the link right back to uh, Moses. And what he was prophesied about, he is the rock. He is a rock. He is that stone which was cut out of the mountain. Just like Moses. Remember when Moses came down from the mountain and he had made the calf, he took the two tablets of stone and in his wrath, he threw them down and he just shattered them. God told him, hew you out two more uh, stone commandment tablets like unto the first. And so God wrote the second time in there. And just as Moses wrote the tablets of the Testament beneath the mount because of the sins of the people, so Jesus, that rock was broken on Mount Calvary for my sin and the sin of, of all the people. He is the tabernacle, temple. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple in three days while I raise it up. He's, and this is one of the rare occasions in the scriptures where there's an immediate interpretation of what Jesus meant. But he spake of the temple of his body. He is that greater temple which he spoke in Matthew 12, verse 6. There was conflict between Jesus and, uh, and the uh, Pharisees there. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. He is the great I Am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Notice the pronoun. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the bread of life. And he references that manna in the wilderness. Note that. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I am the resurrection and the life. Whosoever liveth and believeth me shall never die. Believest thou this? Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but pass from death unto life. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ, Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak to the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and it now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. That's a resurrection concept. And Jesus wasn't speaking to people that were buried in the ground. He was talking to people that were on their feet walking. 
And he is saying there's coming a day when those that are dead shall rise. But he also said it is now as well. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Ephesians 5.14 The words of Jesus are so powerful that when the gospel is given, the dead must rise, either unto life or unto death. He was considered a blasphemer. Are thou the Son Christ, the Son of Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power, coming in clouds of heaven. And then the high priest ran his clothes and said, What need we any further witness? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. John 19, verse 7. They scream, we have a law, and by our law, this man ought to die. They threw him under the total condemnation of the law. They couldn't find him a sinner, but the righteousness of Christ does has no fellowship with the righteousness of the law. There was conflict there. He is king. He that hath on his vesture and on his thigh name, king of kings and lord of lords. He is king of the Jews. Pilate put on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Jesus is only king of the Jews. Did you know that? Unless you are a spiritual Jew, circumcised of the heart, then he's your king. I don't think Pilate knew what good theology he was using. My kingdom is not of this world. He makes alive. 1 Corinthians 1.30 But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He's the total package. Therefore, while I divide with him a portion with great, he should divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sins of many, and make intercession for the transgressors. He is Lord of the Sabbath. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I don't think we can grasp what an extravagant statement is being said here. He is a Sabbath worker. John 5, 7, uh, 16 and 17. So not only did they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath, but that he called God his Father, making him equal with God. And they went about to stone him. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Here was his defense. He didn't say, well... You know what? You folks are getting this misunderstanding. I wasn't really working on the Sabbath day after all. That's not the way he addressed the, the accusation. His accusation was, or pardon me, his reply was, My father worketh, and so I work. Keep in mind, the day that they were discussing this was the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week. And he's saying, My father works on this day, and I'm going to work on this day. How do you reconcile that with Genesis chapter 2, where it says, And God rested from all his works on the seventh day, and he rested and he sanctified the day. And Jesus says, No, 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 my father's working on this day. 
How do you reconcile those thoughts? Jesus' kingdom business is a 24-7 operation. God, the Father, the, the creative works, he only rested from his creative works. But his kingdom purposes and all his works that relate to the kingdom continue round the clock. God doesn't rest. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't go away. He don't go on a journey. He's always at this business. Therefore, the Jews sought more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. He is our rest. Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest to your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's, the word Sabbath isn't in there. But the implications can't be missed. Because right following these verses is Matthew chapter 12, where the conflict of the Sabbath rages on. And Jesus is saying, I will give you rest. Rest? These people didn't need rest. They had the Sabbath day coming up. They had a night sleep coming up. What in the world is Jesus referring to? How could Jesus, as a man, provide rest? Jesus was an ordinary looking man. It says there was no beauty in him that we should even desire him. He was not head and shoulders over the people like King Saul was. He didn't have muscles like Samson, places that you didn't know there was places. He didn't have a, he wasn't King David. He didn't have a history of warfare and enemy slaughter like King David. But here's this humble man saying that if you come to me, I will give you rest. Just how important is rest in your life? Some of you got home late last night. You desperately needed what? Rest. Do you know that uh, we spend about a third of our life trying to rest, either resting or trying to rest? That's how important. That's how important rest is. And we're not even talking about Sabbath day yet, but could there be a deeper problem here. You see, men aren't really at rest even when they're sleeping because they have a problem inside called sin and they need an answer to that. And it, it, it is so weighty that it actually destroys men. That's how much burden we are carrying with our sin. And this isn't just true for Jesus' audience. This is true for me. This is true for you. Is that we have a deep need for rest. So when Jesus looked at his crowd of people, whether they were farmers or carpenters or whatever they were, I don't think he had in mind, hey folks, I know you worked hard today, but you need, you need to have some rest. No, he was touching a deeper matter down deep in his heart of rest that every person needs. Do you know one of those descriptions of eternal destruction is in Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, it says, and they shall have no rest day or night. That's one of the horrors of eternal destruction. No rest. Constant torment. No rest. He is our advocate. 
The law of Ten Commandments was given in a fearful demonstration of power at Mount Sinai. So fearful that Moses exceedingly feared and quaked. But God also demonstrated his power in the bringing in of the Son of God into the earth. And I, that was revealed in Ephesians chapter 1. The mighty power when he raised him from the dead and sat him at his own right hand, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. One of the things I wanted to, I wanted to reference this book a little bit. One of those things, this, this rabbi, now keep in mind, this rabbi was a dissenter. It's not a nice story when you get to the end of the book and this rabbi is a believer. Now this man is a modern day Pharisee and he, he compares with the biblical Pharisees. And um, I'm not going to take a lot of time to develop this because uh, my time is running out. But one of the things he pointed, helped me understand was the offensive language that Jesus used when he referred to himself as I in the personal pronouns. By doing that, Jesus wasn't just normal preaching. So when it says that Jesus spoke as one having authority and not as the scribes, it was, you think it was because he had a deep masculine voice or that his voice carried so much better than everybody else's or whether it was his tonality or was it was his body language? No, maybe it was the words that he chose very carefully. And by doing so, he injected himself into the word of God. Any rabbi has the privilege to expound on the word of God, but no rabbi has the privilege to put himself into the word of God. And the one about the come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden. Notice the pronouns in there unto me. It would be like if I was standing here and preaching and say, folks, if you want some rest, come talk to me. I can help you out with that. I got something you need. And you're going to find rest in me. It'd be quite inappropriate. But with Jesus, he could say that because there's there are millions and billions of people in this world today who have a monotheistic religion. But the Christians are unique in this aspect that they believe that the man Christ Jesus fits into one Lord. What is the greatest commandment they ask Jesus? He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. How much space does that give you for anything else? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. How much space does that give you? to a worship a man. So by faith, it takes faith to believe that Jesus, son of man, a man born of a woman, was actually God standing in the flesh. That takes faith. And that's what the Salos illustrate. And this is what Galatians chapter four and Galatians chapter three illustrate. Galatians chapter four. Would I surprise you that you can get answers to this subject by, under, by reading the story of Abraham and his two sons? Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, you that want to be under the law, listen to this allegory. He said, Abraham had two sons, the one after a bondwoman, the other after a free woman. And he goes on, I, I won't take time to read it because we're running out of time, but he says the, the Ishmael, was the son of the slave woman. Isaac was the son of promise. And he says, these are the two covenants. He said, are you under the bondwoman? 
or of the free woman? That's the question. What's more, he says, the son of the bondwoman persecutes the son of the of free woman. He said, and it is even to this day. And if you remember the story back in Genesis, when it came time, when Isaac was develop, developing and it was time for him to be weaned, they threw a party for him. And does anybody know what happened at that party? Ishmael began to mock Isaac. <laughs> See that guy over there? He just quit sucking his thumb. And Sarah come directly to Abraham. And she was angry and a jealous woman. She said to Abraham, your son Ishmael is making fun of my son Isaac. And this brought great distress to Abraham. And he, and she said, you send that bond woman and her son away. So Abraham was sore distressed, and he went before the Lord. He said, what shall I do? And he said, she, the Lord said, do what Sarah told you to do. You know the story. But Ishmael will always mock Isaac, even to this day, because the righteousness which is of God by faith in Jesus Christ is not the same righteousness which is of the Decalogue. If at the end of the day, my righteousness is simply of the Decalogue, I still am outside the kingdom of God. Two laws of righteousness. For what purpose? How do I know which one's for me? Is there a difference? Aren't they the same? Why should I care? I will mention that uh, Romans chapter 7, 1 to 5 is a real eye opener. I'm just going to briefly reference that. In Romans chapter 7, 1, 1 to 5, Paul gives an, uh, another allegory to help us understand our relationship with the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the Law. And he said it's like a woman who has a husband. And she can't be married to another man so long as her husband, which represents her flesh in the allegory, is alive. But if her husband be dead, she's free to marry another man, which in this story, the comparison is Jesus Christ. That teaches us a lot about as long as we are alive in the flesh. We're not married to Christ. Something has to happen to my flesh. It has to die in order for me to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The purpose of the Decalogue is to cause my flesh to die. Because every person has broken the commandment and is deserved of death. It is our job, according to Romans chapter 8, that through the Spirit to mortify the deeds of the flesh. And to bring our flesh into subjection and to put it to death. So ladies, if you want a new husband, you're going to have to kill the one you have. Okay? Because that's the only way you can be married to Christ. Now, I want to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And then I'm just going to wrap it up here. Because I know you're getting hungry. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. Well, this is the only exercise I'm going to give you. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to... Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. I want you to put your finger there. I'm going to, I'm going to read uh, Genesis 1, verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide this day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. 
Verse 16, crucial. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day. Notice the word rule. And the lesser light to rule the night. And he made stars also. And God said, sent them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. In my search for answers, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I was studying this passage one day and all of a sudden I, I perceived something that I didn't see before. Second Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to start uh, verse, um, verse 3. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through God, Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient, of ourselves to think anything of in ourselves, but our sufficiency of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the new covenant, testament, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth light. For if, but if the ministration of death, referring to what happened on Mount Sinai, written and engraved in stone was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which was glory, was to be done away. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more does the ministration of righteousness exceeding glory. For even that which was made glorious hath no glory in this respect by the reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded unto this day, remaining this, remaining the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as the spirit of the Lord. I was studying that one day, and all of a sudden, I thought about Genesis account. It doesn't say anything about the creation, but... I noticed something about brightnesses of glory. And I realized that that is exactly what the creation illustrates. It's the two covenants, the two testaments. First of all, you have the moon. The reason the Old Testament is valid and has any light at all is because it's reflecting the sun of righteousness which is coming over the horizon. That's why the Old Testament can be called truth. John even has the audacity to say that the darkness is now past and the true light now shineth. Can you believe that? He called the Old Testament darkness. If, the, if that which was given on Mount Sinai was glorious, how much more glory this ministration of the Spirit? 
and it was illustrated in the two bodies of light that God created in the old covenant. I mean, in the creation, the moon doesn't make any light of its own, but it's beautiful. It's glorious. Go out in the middle, the middle of the night and see the moon. It's beautiful. But what happens in the morning when the sun comes up? What happens? You can't hardly see it. That all that glory you saw last night. What happened to it? You can't see it because the glory of the ministration of the Spirit dispelled it. For the, even that which was made glory had no glory in this respect, by the reason of the glory that excelled. The glory vanishes when the sun comes up. See that you refused on him that speaketh, for if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape from him that turneth away from speaketh from heaven. I like this passage because it references what happened on Mount Sinai. And he said, if, if people don't escape when God spoke from the earth, how much more should you expect to escape when God speaks from heaven? And in my natural way of thinking, it's a reverse. When I think of what happened on Mount Sinai, I think of God speaking from heaven. And when Jesus came, he spoke on earth. But this scripture says in the opposite way, that God spoke from the earth this time, and when Jesus is speaking from heaven from here in, in our day. You have two mountaintop experiences. You have God speaking from Mount Sinai, and it says in Matthew 5, as they went up, went up on the mountain, and he sat down, he began to teach them. His voice then shook the earth, but now it's promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth, and it, but also heaven. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God with acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Mount Sinai, the ministration of death and condemnation. Mountain to mountain, God speaks. Sermon on the Mount, the administration of life and Jesus. The law of sin and death, the law of the Spirit. It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and life. The just shall live by faith. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And I put only in there, that's my, just for understanding. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness only. In other words, in Jesus, the law is no more the definition of righteousness. If, there, if therefore perfection by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need we that there another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Wherefore then serveth the law, the, the Decalogue. It was added because of transgressions till the, what? Till the seed should come. Till the sheep should come to whom the promise was made. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. The schoolmaster is a harsh, persnickety character. He demands excellence, but does not show sympathy or mercy for our weaknesses or our infirmities in the flesh. What are we to do with the schoolmaster? How do we get the schoolmaster off our back? Every day he condemns me. Look where the schoolmaster is pointing. His pointer is pointing to Jesus Christ. 
For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. Paul teaches that when the law has accomplished its job in death in me, he is no longer my master. Any good school teacher should work himself out of a job. Did you know that? If he accomplishes goals as a schoolmaster, if a schoolmaster is doing his job, he should prepare his students where he doesn't need him anymore. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Our new professor at the University of Life in the Spirit, I think I'll skip these. Am I therefore become your enemy because I've told you the truth? Paul asks the Galatian people. What does the law of the spirit of life from Christ Jesus look like? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But he humbled himself and become fashioned as a man and become obedient unto death. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. These illustrate the, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. My friends, you're going to need a transformed mind. A man came to Jesus one night. His name was Nicodemus. He wanted to have Jesus' audience. And he said, Master, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. We, no man does your kind of works except he be from God. And before he could get another word out of his mouth, Jesus said, except ye be born again, ye cannot see the kingdom of God. Except ye be born again, ye cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is what a, we need a transformed mind. My question I'm going to wrap up with is, is your Sabbath day rest? Is your Sabbath rest a day or a person? Can the seventh day provide that deep problem, satisfy that problem that's deep down into you? Can the seventh day take away your sin? Can the seventh day impute to you righteousness and a transformed mind? If that can't, who can? Jesus. Many Christians want to live their life by the righteousness of the law, the Decalogue, and die by the righteousness which is of God by faith in Jesus Christ. But it's actually Christians need to die by the righteousness of the Decalogue and live by the righteousness which is of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Because when you believe in 
Jesus, you have passed from death unto life. Instead of a law that incites me to sin, I embrace a law person that invites me to draw near to the lawgiver. Does my culture and tradition exalt this man, Christ Jesus, who was our teacher, our lamb, our ram? He rose again. He was the seed and is now at the right hand of the Father and enthroned, ruling from heaven. One of the questions I asked myself when I was in this study is, if I was a pagan or from unchurched background, could I read the scriptures and come up with the same practice that I am right now without the culture around me? What do you think? Jesus was a specialist. You know what a specialist is? A specialist is a person who specializes, pardon me, a specialist is a person who focuses more and more on less and less. That's what a specialist is. Jesus, of all the things that Jesus could have entertained his crowds with, of all the facts he could have shared with them about creation and mathematics and the stars and Everything he could have entertained him while well, he didn't talk about it. At least it's not recorded. He said, I came to do only to do the will of my father. I came to say only the things that my father told me to do. He came because the kingdom of God came with him. So he specialized in the kingdom of God and the rule of Christ. And a kingdom with goes out throughout all the world that has no end. It incorporates all peoples, all language, all geography, and languages and peoples and colors of skin. That's what his kingdom is made up from. It's And its law is defined by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. I think I'm going to wrap it up right there. Oh, I got one more. One more. Anybody know what that is? Camaro. I have a friend who's about 20 years older than me. And uh, we've been good friends for almost 18 years. And he has that car sitting in his garage. And he said to me one day, he said, Leo, that car will make an 18-year-old out of a 60-year-old. The name of that car is called a transformer. And he's right. That car will make a 20-year-old out of a 60-year-old car. But that's not the transformation that we're talking about. The transformation that we're talking about is one that seeks first the kingdom of God and His righteousness then all these things should be added to you, and it probably won't include a Camaro. So, I, my desire for you out of my testimony is, is that Jesus is my Sabbath rest. I look forward to every Sunday to celebrate in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to work extra hard on the Sabbath to accomplish my top priority on the first day of the week. I actually appreciate our culture 
in our tradition very well because I believe it illustrates the mind of Christ. When I was digging in, when I first was introduced to this dilemma, I'll call it, I began to have fears in my heart. I was afraid that if I began to dig into this, I was going to uncover something that was going to un uproot what I thought was my understanding in Christ. And instead, I found truths and facts that supported everything I understood before as far as our Christian beliefs. And so today I'm very enthusiastic about this subject because the more I ask questions, the more I discovered that I wasn't so unusual in this question. There's lots of people I discovered that are asking them themselves, how do I explain this? I don't keep any of the Decalogue for righteousness in Christ. If at the end of the day, that's all my righteousness is, I'm condemned and I'm not part of the kingdom of God.